0: Hi everyone. For this week's podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Cook, a Honolulu board-certified psychiatrist in private practice. He's the director of the Beyond Mental Health Clinic here in Honolulu, and he combines traditional psychiatry with alternative care models. Uh, We spoke in general about his practice. We also spoke about marijuana, ketamine, psychedelics, alternative care modalities, social breakdown. Parenting and the role of technology in today's mental health climate. I think we're going to have to do several releases because there's a wealth of information that he shares. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll share show links and links to his website and whatnot. Enjoy. Thank you. So, why don't we um, just dive in, Dr. Cook? Before we start, how do you describe yourself and a quick bio and who you are?
1: I would describe myself as a a quirky psychiatrist, but that's a kind of a redundant thing, I guess, nowadays, but I'm an alternative psychiatrist. And where was your medical training from? I went to Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and that's where I went to undergrad too in Chicago.
0: And you've had your practice in Hawaii for how many years?
1: I've been in private practice for seven years, and I completed my residency here at UH in uh, 2013.
0: And what made you stay in Hawaii?
1: My ex is from here. I've got three kids and um, just rooted. I'm rooted here. I've been here long enough to know everybody here, everybody in the mental health system and, the, and at the in and around the hospitals. So it was natural to open my practice after I worked at the state hospital for two years and got dabbled in forensics work and some, um, some work with the circuit court in terms of dealing with um, the criminal side of psychiatry. Maybe that will, before
0: we talk, yesterday we talked about some of the criminal aspects in medicine, but one of the first questions I had actually before we dive into that is, since you're from the mainland and you did your original medical training there, What are some of the major differences in the medical health kind of environment between Hawaii and the mainland? I'm just curious what you see
1: there. Or if they're the same. Well, in the Midwest, Chicago is a pretty diverse place, but not as diverse as Honolulu. Here you see such a menagerie of um, cultural psychiatry you know cuz psychosis looks different in a filipino than it does in a white waspy you know white anglo person and uh depression looks different in a japanese older gentleman than it does in a you know a young um portuguese hawaiian kind of person it's just it's really interesting here the intersection of culture and mental illness and it's um i've always wanted to be kind of a renaissance Doctor, that's why I went into psychiatry, so I wouldn't lose my, the flavor and taste of reading novels and studying humans, human behavior from a fuzzy perspective, liberal arts. And here in psychiatry, here in Hawaii, you've got, you've got that to the max.
0: And then what made you kind of open your own practice versus continuing the work in the kind of clinical, uh, criminal settings, for
1: instance? I found the state uh, bureaucracy a criminal system here where they send people to the state hospital for evals to be uh, just a mess. And they had people who were obviously dangerous sociopaths intermixing with vulnerable schizophrenics. And I came up against the hospital for segregating them. They had um, somebody from OSHA and those kinds of people talking to me about, oh, you can't Segregate and you can't because they're all considered patients. So we had this basic philosophical disagreement about free will and who's a patient and who's not, and how do you become a patient? Do you become a patient just presumptively? And so I was having to basically manage uh, prisoners and extremely vulnerable people simultaneously on the same ward, and I, I found it unethical, and uh, and it was. Um I think I think it stems largely from a unexamined philosophy which the state system has where they they can't um easily decide when someone is a bad actor and when someone is sick.
0: And then what are some of those um unquestioned philosophy that made you
1: what what would be the ideal then for you? Well, People are smarter than we give them credit for, and people play the system all the time and say they have symptoms and try to get exculpatory, you know, interpretations made on their crime. I was once telling a story about a, a a Chicago story of a criminal who said, I had, you know, two personalities, and the person's obviously a sociopath and is feigning this and faking it. So this humorous judge said, well, I'm going to sentence um, both of you to prison. You're going to do 30 years instead of 15 because <laughs> he's going to he." the judge sentenced both personalities.
0: And how did the uh, prisoner he,
1: take that? Decision he was cured. I yeah, I guess so. I think in another instance, that same prisoner had said, uh, actually, Victor, this, this next one's from Victor Frankel. And. I think he's describing a situation in the East coast in the sixties when person said, you know, my illness made me do it judge. I can't help it. I can't help it at all. And the judge said, well, I, I understand I sympathize with you, but I can't help dropping this gavel either. So sorry. <laughs> and I think the, the, the tone of irresponsibility is so high in state hospital systems. Um, there's just, a culture of irresponsibility, um, and, uh, and the, the nanny state, the kind of the nanny state and caring for people that kind of need a swift kick in the rear, which may leave us into the discussion of parenting at some point.
0: Maybe you can expand a little bit on free will and what you think that applies to in psychiatry. I'm curious
1: what just individual action or what do you mean by free will? well it's it's not just free will but reason liberal art that just what does it mean to be a liberal it means to do things for no other reason than the pure intellectual enjoyment that's why the arts like history and poetry were always considered liberal arts they're not utilitarian arts they are liberal arts you know they're not trades; they're not for anything um And that's what humans are in our very nature. We're quirky. We like to just cut the grass as we walk by with our cane or, you know, grab a a flower and put it in, do things for no apparent reason, a hum a tune. This is part of being happy. And that's what psychedelics get people back towards is always a spontaneous quirkiness, um, which is, I think, core essence of being human. And that is partly also related to being um, rebellious too. Um, but psychiatry has had a philosophical problem for a long time, and that is not approaching a, a human from the point, point of view of free will and reason, and always looking at the things they say as motivated by some you know irrational instinct and something that's below reason or behind reason or underneath reason. Or, and usually those instincts are things that can be studied in small animals and rats. And so there's been this behaviorist trend in psychiatry, which has reduced people to um, stimulus and response. And you see a lot of that philosophy today in social media programming of algorithms and the gambling kind of Facebook, Instagram kind of reinforcement you know, stuff. And it's very, very, very saturated in the coding, the world of software and coding and all that and behaviorism. But we also have uh, the Freudianism where you just see through everything and reduce the people down to something else. So there's this is this joke about two psychiatrists that meet in the hallway and one says, good morning. And the other one thinks, I wonder what he means by that. And that's kind of ridiculous, but that is kind of, you can take the interpretive reductive aspects of psychiatry to such an extreme that you just lose the capacity to um, to be liberal to talk to people um, in a fun creative spontaneous way and I see that in my field it's a problem in my field and so you know I, I think that's part of the reason I needed to practice on my own so philosophically I can protect myself from these errors which are I think. So pervasive, not just in psychiatry, but in in, um, in society in general. I, c- I also just couldn't handle the, the bureaucracy of the, the legal system. And, but a lot of it, I, can you hear me still? Yeah, perfect a lot, a lot A lot of it I enjoyed. I liked writing conditional release letters and making predictions whether people will be violent. But, you know, there's obvious limits to that
0: expanding on that then what you set up your own clinic and then tell me about your evolution into kind of alternative psychiatry with psychedelics mainly ketamine
1: it all I, I was I was as straight laced as anybody you know I never smoked pot I was the the kid in high school that kind of was med school bound and judged my friends for it and you know I never tried marijuana until my thirties and um It was actually right around the same time that I was leaving the state hospital system and opening my my private practice. And um, I got really interested in medical pot from my patients, a lot of whom were combat vets, and they gave me books to read and started reading academic cannabinoid medicine articles and was as of that time not into psychedelics at all. And um, I just listened to my patients. I see a lot of doctors just don't learn from their patients, but, you know, patients have time to read and they, a lot of them are really smart and, and wonder, you know, they're driven to by their suffering. Suffering produces wisdom. And people who have suffered a lot for a long time, they they really have looked into things and they are wise. And so I saw a lot of combat vet patients getting off of Antipsychotics, Risperdal, clonopin, seroquel. At the VA is prescribing, and you know, with marijuana, they're doing so much better. And I, I would, I saw it. I saw so many patients that I became convinced empirically and clinically into the efficacy of of marijuana for PTSD symptoms. And it it rattled my my philosophy of, you know. being uh, skeptical of of mind-altering substances as possibly being, you know, useful in healing and having an intoxicated mind state as being part of healing. And I also became more sensitively aware over time of the fact that ordinary medications that we don't consider intoxicating, like say Lyrica or even SSRIs, do induce an altered uh, mind state. I started to really listen, not just the way my training told me to, but, you know, really ask questions and people like when you started this SSRI, did you ever feel like as if things were a little silly or not quite real or, you know, in terms of your seriousness in your attitude towards uh, stressful situations, what did the SSRI do for you? And I started to hear all kinds of subtle Differences. And so it opened my eyes that even pharmaceuticals can be more psychoactive in terms of um, not just these flat two dimensional symptom categories that we talk about, like mood or ruminations or guilt or, you know, this kind of flat behavioristic way of looking at patients. If you look at it in more of a phenomenological way, a more subjectively sensitive way, you realize. A lot of these pharmaceuticals we're giving are, are very psychoactive, but not necessarily in a way that's healing. You know, I realize SSRIs have a lot of numbing effects. Um, and uh, I didn't see that with cannabis. I just, uh, I saw only, um, only, only benefits um there are problems with cannabis and there's problems with any any new psychedelic, but um, I I found that the problems with, with cannabis are are really insignificant com- compared to pharmaceuticals. So my what practice are, trended towards getting people off of pharmaceuticals. When you discuss the
0: risks of cannabis, uh did you see an evolution? Uh, many doctors are concerned about the high THC cannabis, kind of the evolution of kind of a corporate cannabis that keeps pushing the THC higher and higher and higher. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have any response to that or what's your ideal? We're just I'm curious about uh, more thoughts on cannabis in terms of the risks.
1: Well, I do agree with the risk of paranoia, psychosis, short-term memory problems, and these are all products of pushing the THC level too high. It's frustrating to have a dispensary system where, you know, all the THC percentages are 20% and above. How do I induce a a grandma who's never used it into teaching her how to vape? How do you tell someone what a small puff is versus a medium puff versus a large, you know, and edibles really are better low dose, micro dose edibles are wonderful. Like Aloha green here has these mints that are two and a half milligrams, which are, um, which are great for, um, for new, new people to carefully titrate their dose. But, um, you know, Willie Nelson would say that, Back in the sixties, Woodstock era, you could smoke a whole joint and be moderately high. And today, that's impossible. You know, for most people, two hits and they're high. And so it's it it doesn't lend cred- credibility to the medical marijuana industry that we we don't allow the the newbies, so to speak, or the people that are new to it, to to find ways to dose themselves slowly and carefully. And I think it's due to selective breeding. You know, it's just like in the world of dogs. You have these French bulldogs that can't even go into labor. They have to have C-sections because these things have been unnaturally bred. And cannabis has to be meticulously uh, bred for, you know, a lot of reproductive cycles. And the pollen, the certain types of plants have to be kept apart, strictly separated. It's not natural to have thc percents that high so i do agree with a lot of the criticism and there will be as marijuana gets more popularized there are going to be a slight uptick in some of the adverse effects overall and its benefit on society and reducing uh liquor abuse opioid abuse opioid overdoses and 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 it's detoxification from pesticides and overall cannabis is going to have a a beneficial effect on society. But I think the criticisms are valid. And for recreational pot, we should limit the THC to 12% or 10%. And I think medical, you can go higher. Some people need extreme, you know, high doses of RSO for their cancer. But I think that recreational marijuana should be generally low THC because that's where the risk lies or the risk would be minimized that way.
0: Do You think um, maybe pushing into the fraud or kind of the corporate culture, what are some of the parallels you see kind of with that intensification of the THC and cannabis with the intensification of the medicalization of psychiatry? Is there a parallel there or not in terms of, I mean, I read some statistics that one in, I think five under 18 are on some psychotropic, you know, pharmaceutical product. I'm just curious if you see what your thoughts are on the industry aspect of mental health and how that plays into just improvement.
1: Well, because cannabis hasn't been absorbed into mainstream medical culture, it's, you know, unregulated. It also has a high placebo response because like any medicine that's got a lot of cultural trappings, it's going to have high placebo uh associations, kind of like in the ancient world, you know, you've had different doctors in ancient Greece and Hippocrates, and these people had reputations, you know, they had almost a a culture surrounding them, a cult, if you will. So cannabis has a cult um, surrounding it. And that includes, you know, some false expectations, false advertising, you know, CBD will do this, it'll do that. No, it won't. Um, You know, I tried it, it, didn't do this. And and then all the Rastafarian cultural um, connotations, which it with it, which are you know, largely wonderful, um, but that has kept the world of cannabis separate from mainstream medicine and has subjected it to some criticisms because it has so much culture attached to it. Um, the cannabis industry is largely unregulated because it's left up to states, and so. It has attracted quite a few douchebags that want to sell as much CBD as they can and make false claims, um, and, um, uh, and 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 hide its adverse effects. And if you if you're trying to make that connection with big pharma, I do see where you're going with that because I think you you can loosely compare the fact that uh, for for other reasons big pharma is largely um unregulated um, in terms of vaccines today i think in pharmaceuticals you still have pretty high standards at the fda but what we're seeing with pfizer right now with um lack of safety data amongst pregnant women and yet we have you know pfizer working with the with the feds to promote it at the american college of obstetrics and gynecology and american academy of pediatrics Despite really good safety data, we could you can kind of see an industry um, that's a very unregulated, uh, making excessive claims and and um,
0: so those excessive claims aren't done by Pfizer for Brozac and other kind of SSRI products and other, I mean pushing new and new, you know mental health products.
1: I think what we've seen with big pharma and antidepressants is that the y-axis is always manipulated. You know, they'll say, oh, 10-point reduction in HAMD or PHQ score, this or that, you know, whatever uh, psychometric test there is for a mood symptom or a PTSD symptom. And then they they take that number and then say, oh, effective. And then they bamboozle the, the FDA. Uh, who you know has FDAs full of people that used to work at, at the top executive positions at these drug companies and vice versa. Um they'll leave the FDA and go work. So so you know when they're talking when the FDA is talking to Big Pharma, they are talking to the their colleagues who used to work at the FDA. These they have their numbers on speed dial. They used to go out for dinner and they know they, know, they all know each other. So it's a- Incestuous. the regulatory agencies are all captured and it's, it's it's an incestuous kind of situation. You saw that with Scott Gottlieb. You only have to look up who Scott Gottlieb, G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B, is to understand why the FDA was uh, very compromise has been very compromised in terms of its interactions with Pfizer all throughout 2021. And what but what Big Pharma does with antidepressants, which are a many of which are blockbusters, three out of the top 10 grossing meds are all antidepressants, Um, is they will manipulate the definitions of efficacy. And so people will, you know, you got statisticians and wow, impressive reduction in this scale of this or whatever. And then that's defined as effective. A lot of it's sleight of of hand. And it's not that effective. SSRIs are about 40% effective um, for depression as opposed to TMS being 60% and ketamine being around 70 and psilocybin being around 80 in terms of reg- a rough comparison. And that's, you can quote me on that, but,
0: um, TMS being a uh, trans,
1: uh, <clears throat> yes. Transcranial magnetic stimulation is, is it outperforms SSRIs, um, for, for in, in, when I compare all those things, my definition of efficacy is: are more than half of the patients satisfied with symptom with their symptom reduction, and are they do they say this worked for me? That's my definition. You'll never have a drug company define a drug to the FDA in terms of are more than half of the people content with the reduction in their symptoms. They they will never ever ever uh, define efficacy in those terms. It's always a reductive status, statistical definition based on some kind of questionnaire. They love to hide in statistics and hide in the metric. For instance, this is a common thing. Pfizer, when the COVID vaccine came out, their study was they tested two groups of 22,000 people. And you had to vaccinate all 22,000 in one of those groups and then none of the other group. And in the one that you vaccinate, you reduce the COVID PCR uh, in, you know, numbers by about 100. Um, and you reduce the number of COVID deaths about by one. So there was two, two COVID deaths in the unvaccinated group and one death in the vaccinated group. Now, that's to vaccinate 22,000. You reduce the death by one. now. Uh, Pfizer declared in the media that their efficacy was 100% because to reduce the number from two to one is one is one, you know, two is 100% of one. So that's all the public knew was uh, 100% effective. And so that's presenting relative risk as if it is absolute risk. So that's an old sleight of hand. If if you, you got to be really gullible. To believe that they don't know what they're doing and they don't know, you know, that they're presenting. Um, so are they presenting, maybe,
0: well, I mean, focusing on the psychotropic drugs, are they presenting the SSRIs more effective than TMS, for instance, or they never compare the two, they'll just compare Prozac to another SSRI, correct? Or a Correct.
1: TMS is threatening to big pharma. They've never been in the, in the, the business of TMS in there. They're not, I don't think they're ever going to try to be, it's always, going, excuse me, going to be an alternative. um When they compare new antidepressants, they will not necessarily compare them to old antidepressants because um they'll, they'll do as good as sometimes, but generally they will use psychometric questionnaires and then they'll exaggerate the y-axis in terms of the, the, um, the amount of symptom reduction that's, you know, that's obtained.
0: So moving into ketamine, um, since that's a schedule two drug and it's generic, Mm -hmm. I know Johnson and Johnson has the e-ketamine. How are they responding to the effectiveness that you're seeing in depression and rapid onset, you know, suicidal depression treatment and things like that? Are you seeing favor or how are you, Interacting with the traditional pharma
1: companies and things. Well, two drug reps approached my office a few years ago with a, when, when um, Spravato was coming out, which is basically just Johnson Johnson's attempt to uh, patent one of the enantiomers of ketamine. It's got a left-handed and a right-handed, much in the way that amphetamines do. You know, dexedrine is the right-handed one and Adderall is a mixed left and right. So they tried to pull that sleight of hand of assuming that the left-sided one is more effective. It was based on some spurious reports, and uh, they marketed it as a purified patented thing when you're getting the same thing from any any generic um, ketamine provided through by a doctor like myself at a ketamine clinic. Uh, They did an additional sleight of hand by researching depressed individuals with suicidal ideation and then when they couldn't prove that it reduced suicidal ideation it did improve mood because ketamine tends to improve mood but because it's it's a nasal spray it's a micro dose it's not a real dose they wanted to compare the nasal spray dose which is less bioavailable to the intramuscular or to the IV uh, because they couldn't they couldn't find a way to patent that. And so they wanted this nasal spray to, you know, get a piece of the action, a piece of the market. And so they, but they marketed as if it improves suicidal features, knowing that intramuscular or IV ketamine are have been documented to reduce suicide. One of the first psych drugs ever to do so, other than um, clozapine and maybe lithium. Uh, But, you know, none of the SSRIs have reduced suicide. They actually increase, as we found out with Eli Lilly and the Black Box Warning with Prozac. But what Johnson and Johnson did with Speravado was another sleight of hand, where they um, they they study a patient population which has some suicidal features. They reduced their mood problems, didn't change the suicidal ideation. And then marketed it as if it's effective for suicidal ideation. Just as effective as the psychedelic, you know, dose that's given in a clinic uh, like mine. And so it's caused tremendous confusion in the world of ketamine. People are thinking that spravado gives the same results. Um, they were having insurances pay $600 or more per little spray bottle. So they're trying to you know force the FDA or to try to have the FDA excuse me force uh insurances to cover ketamine for a similar price that that you would pay in a in a psychedelic clinic and with less efficacy so it's uh, it's disappointing
0: is the aside from the IV dosing is part of the effectiveness of the ketamine treatment? um, the spa-like and, you know, psychotherapy
1: aspect as well, or is it, do you believe it just to be the drug? No, integration, uh, with either a guy, an experienced guide or sitter or following up in that afterglow period, you know, when you're more malleable, a little more regressed, a little more childlike the week after any psychedelic dose ketamine always provides better results and the idea you can just put 10 people in a room snorting Spravato from a plastic can and they just kind of wait 2 hours and then go home and that that's equivalent to psychedelically um informed guided uh, guided experience or with a little bit of integration at the end the idea that those are equivalent is just uh, just crazy now you just clinically speaking you you always get better results when um you get a controlled regression. You get a little bit of a transference effect towards the person who's the guide, just like you'd expect in an ayahuasca ceremony, you know, um, you, you be, you go back into your, your child and the person is there to protect you and and hold you in space and, and, um, provide you a holding space where you can, Recode your childhood and, and reparent yourself. That's that's the whole point. So the relational aspect of it is is very very important. Is that your belief on
0: how the ketamine
1: um, is functioning on the depression aspect? That's the regression, or is there something else? I think it's. <clears throat> I think it. You can look at it in so many ways from a fuzzy liberal arts perspective. You could say that it's a controlled regression. You can say that there's a third person effect where you see yourself you almost see your parents as children. You almost see your family system as if you are an ancestor of your own family. And you, you kind of step outside time, step outside yourself. And there can be kind of a a flood of self-compassion and self-love with that. You see that with a lot of psychedelics, but third person effect is I believe strongest with, with ketamine. That's why it's so effective for um, certain types of depression. What um, are your thoughts on the telehealth ketamine clinics? Have you heard of these? How is the ketamine administered in, in those clinics?
0: Well, now that the because of the COVID regulations, they expanded cross-state telehealth rules. Basically, they mail people the the Johnson and Johnson product and then do it, a Zoom call where they kind of snort the ketamine and do some type of integration on a Zoom call.
1: I think if it's an online business and you don't have much um, rapport or transference or feelings towards the the person on the other end, I don't think it's um, that useful. I think if it's done with a talk therapist who you know and who knows you and who um, you know they know you, so there's some of that bond, that mirroring, that contagious kind of – you know, mental health is contagious, just like hysteria is contagious, you know? So that's what we get from a relationship of healing. You get a contagious modeling effect like you would from a friend or sibling. And, uh, I don't, I think psychedelics can amplify that, but I think if you don't know the person that very well on the other end, and it's just, a, you know, it's not, not that useful. I am realistic, however, that micro doses of ketamine are are pretty useful for people who ruminate and brood and have trouble letting go of things. And um, if they form a bond with a person through an online business, I I think it's great. You know, and I think it does overall increase access, but um, the quality goes down. So maybe the incident, the quality is way harder to control. I do know, um, for instance, I I have a patient in my practice who I obviously won't, will not give any identifiers for, but who would make an, an awful, uh, an awful therapist, <laughs> uh, but who wants to be a therapist. And, you know, I can't tell this guy that, but, um, you know, let's say a therapist, a patient of mine like that wants to be a therapist and who tells me that they're going to be hired by one of these online businesses. Um, and I ask, what's the hiring process? And the, and they tell me, and he tells me, well, it's just, you know, they just want to see that I did this training or that and went to, they did a quick five minute talk interview and then they hire me. So these are businesses which are uh, basically not engaging in very much quality control at all.
0: Yeah. My fear with the ketamine, it's that there's a gold rush behind the psychedelics and then you have the same aspect that you would have with pharma or the cannabis industry being kind of, corporatized. And then that has obviously the pros and cons, like you said, expanded access, but then quality control issues.
1: Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's exactly that. Um, I think I worry about the psilocybin. Um, I think it's good. What's done in Oregon. I'm part of the clarity project, the lobbying, you know, activist group here in Hawaii. And I think the laws as they change in Oregon for access are great. The pitfall that I worry about is that when you have a lot of unlicensed people serving as guides, which is what's going to happen in Oregon, um, the um, fear of losing your license is no longer a, um, a stoppage towards uh, boundary crossing and people having sex with their, with their patients. Um, you know, the vast majority, of that's not an issue but maybe for the 5%, the risk of losing your license is what holds is stops you. When you get rid of that, you get a lot of these problems that you've seen in ayahuasca gurus and, you know, young women getting taken advantage of. And, you know, we, we tend to blame Nixon too much. We, we, we forget that what Tim Leary and Alpert and what was happening at Harvard was they were having sex with female students, you know, grad students and boasting that LSD made them more seductive as, as men and, you know, doing all these workshops with getting every, putting everybody on LSD. And um, I don't think it was necessarily all just an anti-drug attitude that was reactionary to Timothy Leary. I I think it was. um, I think, I think they were partly reacting to. um, The, the, sexual boundaries violations that which were you know would influence the department of psychology at harvard and and so i think we need to own that and i think we need to prevent that from happening again and so we need to have a high degree of uh, of professionalism as you know this industry kind of goes off to the races and it's going to be like horses just on unbridled just going 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 I think we do need people who have, you know, an unfettered optimism, but we it needs it really does need. And Michael Pollan has been very right about we need to we need to counterbalance that with being as buttoned up as we can, and 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 um, and careful. There will be harms with any with any any paradigm shift if there's a new class of pharmaceutical there's going to be a shift in the types of harms um and there's going to be tremendous benefit too but um these these modalities of healing are so important that we need to um not everybody would agree with me you know maybe rick doblin would disagree with me and he'd be more of the libertarian model i guess an optimist yeah but i'm i'm i uh, i do think we need to uh to be careful i would rather these substances be recreational if i knew that they would you know never be incorporated into the medical mainstream but what i've seen in psychiatry in the past 10 years is psychiatry um is it it is allowing them and it is struggling with how to mainstream psychiatry is as it's been uh, dominated by big pharma for 25 years you know academic psychiatrists are accepting uh, cannabis and and they are accepting psilocybin if stubbornly uh, but they are, and they will, and I think uh, eventually we will get back to psychiatry where it was when drug-assisted therapy was a thing in the 50s. Um, but we, we're kind of having to walk walk back rather than walk forward in order to um, – I don't think history moves in a progressive dire- direction necessarily at all. It devolves, and then people need to rewind and go back. It's what revolutions are all about. So. I think we're seeing that now, and you know, you're going to have the diehards and the Tories and whatnot, and that's that's really the big pharma of people at this point.
0: How do you manage your clinic then to maintain that professionalism, or at least aim to do that with your patients, or your other colleagues, or I mean, I'm just curious how you protect not yourself but also your patients from kind of. I,
1: have, I screen any talk therapists that are going to work with ketamine. Um, in a higher dose setting in my office or work with my patients who have just come out of my office and then see their therapist. Um, I want to know who they are. You know um, my assistant who sits in and guides patients um, is someone I have profound trust in and, and, have you know, gotten to know her over the years and, and she's very professional. Um, I think just, As a profession, psychiatry needs to be a bit buttoned up, a bit on the conservative side because we're dealing with emotions and traumas and and people are messes. They're impulsive and they can't control themselves and patients fall in love with their doctor and doctors hear all kinds of things about their patients, a lot of uh, intimate things. And we need to counterbalance that with as much professionalism as we can um
0: i just just, i keep it's funny that you keep mentioning that professionalism but at the same time they're so willing to almost over prescribe for ordinary life events sometimes right the general assumption i mean if you look at the number of people on i don't know if people are just getting mentally worse or they're just taking more substances it's hard to know
1: maybe it's both i think people are taking more, um, substances now, but, you know, we've seen alcohol and opioids go down a little bit, uh, lately. Um, but yeah, people are, people are moving generally away from taking a, a, an antidepressant every day and they're kind of pursuing a different treatment model, a sporadic treatment model where you, you, but yeah, as a, as a society, I think stressors are, 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 are way up. And uh, people are more lonely and stressed out than ever, um, largely due to the uh, political climate and big tech and the excessive in, incursion on in our, in our lives from, from technology.
0: Do you have any thoughts on, I'm just curious about homelessness and psychosis and what is driving that? I mean, there's mention of, you know, designer spice or synthetic amino acids or the meth I'm just, here's what you think as a psychiatrist, aside from, you know, some well, spice,
1: synthetic cannabinoids are, are a product of big pharma. They were in, invented by big pharma chemists in the early two thousands as an attempt to make money off what was viewed as a potentially lucrative cannabis industry. Spice, as we know, and like synthetic THC was. And it can cause psychosis. Yeah. It, it was invented by, I don't know which drug company you'd have to look that up, your, your listeners, but it was an it's, it's a, it's an invention of, of big pharma, just as heroin was heroin was made by IG Farben and, and, Bayer. Um, and so we have, you know, and it probably has its proper use, but, um, there was an attempt to make a blockbuster weight loss drug in two thousands when I was in med school called dronabinol. And it got pulled because it made people suicidal. Another synthetic cannabinoid that could makes people unstable. Um, and I think big pharma's kind of stepped away from the cannabis development world because they've had some failures. And but they always keep someone in the back. All the cannabinoid research conferences always be a representative from big pharma in the back, just sitting quietly with a laptop taking notes. So they 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 follow everything, thinking that if they throw a billion dollars, they can beat someone else to the punch um uh, but spice spice uh escaped the lab so to speak and became a you know a thing on the streets and uh i don't think drugs are the primary driving force in homelessness though i think it's bro- the brokenness of the of the family structure in the us credible high rates of divorce and single parents and Um, broken families, estrangement, unreconcilable, estrangement, differences, and um, I think that's what drives homelessness.
0: So Dr. Cook, now that you've been a therapist or a a doctor for so many years, how does that play into your own personal parenting kind of life and what you see and how that affects how you are as a person?
1: How does how does being how does my work in psychiatry affect how I parent my kids?
0: Well, now that you're seeing one of the causes of maybe the mental health issue being divorce or trauma, intergenerational child trauma, or societal technology, and you know all these issues you mentioned, I'm just curious how you live your life differently, or reaction to that, or how you apply to that.
1: I think one of the main things we've seen since 2006 when Tinder came out is we've seen sexual chaos amongst the millennial generation. We've had a generation of people that don't know how to handle jealousy feelings, um, and the self-esteem problems that come from that, um, from a more sexually libertine kind of hookup culture. Um, and, uh, So I think it's incumbent on anybody parenting today to view the iPhone like plutonium. Um, It's quite possibly one of the most powerful things on earth. It's incredibly useful, but it can radiate you. It can hurt you. um, And it needs to be regulated. We, We need to regulate technologies to the extent that they wield power over us and allow one human to wield an oligarchic like power over another human. And, um, you see that sexually with a lot of emasculated men addicted to porn and just kind of simping on beautiful women who have an OnlyFans account. Now these men are lacking, uh, the development that their grandfathers got in the fifties and sixties of, you know, trying to seduce a real woman. And the impact of that on their development as young men is is unfathomable. I I do agree with some of the social critics like Jordan Peterson who um, have stated that there will be an uptick in depression and violence in, in men because of the uh, the effects of <clears throat> sexual over over availability on on young people. And there's a wonderful article. I don't remember where it was written, which periodical, but I think it's a fairly moderate periodical that says that men did greater things when it was harder to see boobs. And, um, I, I, I agree with it. I, I, if it puts me as a, if it people categorize me as a prude or as a whatever, I, I, that's fine. But I, I think that tech and the ready availability of porn has created a generation of young people that have trouble falling in love and are quite bitter. Um, So with our children, we need to um, be aware of that. I'm not a Luddite, I'm not totally anti-tech, but we need to realize that uh, the tech unleashes all kinds of things that um, we can't regulate it ourselves. We need to regulate the tech. And, you know, I, I see technology leading us into irrational actions like for instance let's just get away from the iphone and look at hand sanitizer anybody who goes up to a hand sanitizer machine during covid and no sanitizer comes out bathroom and wash their hands or do they just shrug their shoulders and get in the elevator go in the go in the building and do whatever they were going to do they don't they don't go to the bathroom so why were you why were you going to the hand sanitizer then Why are people doing an action, which if it fails, there's nothing else there? There's no bottom. uh, Underneath is just pure irrationality. And I see that with iPhone checks of people obsessively, you know, at the dinner table, kids do this, teenagers, check my email. Did I get a text? Did I get a text? Did I get a text? Well, if you didn't, you're kind of disappointed. Well, because, you know, they've designed it that way, at least on social media. But Texting is not I don't think it's any kind of nefarious coders behind it, but it leads to actions which are really uh, socially disruptive. And so as a family man and and having family life for my kids, um, teaching kids that this tech is incredibly powerful, but also can be incredibly harmful. It's something needs to be handled with care like plutonium. You know, It's like chest x rays. We used to have them at the carnival and they'd cause cancer. We'd play, it was cool to see your skeleton at the carnival, you know, and uh, in the th- continuous live stream x rays, but we had to get rid of that. Technology is always exciting and fun and sexy until you know it wreaks havoc, and that's that's the lesson of uh Jurassic Park. and Michael Crichton was saying that all his life until he until the day he died. Um, and um. We also need to know that science and technology are amoral. They're not immoral. They are amoral. They have nothing to do with morality. In fact, you could be a better criminal the more science you know. That was the lesson of Breaking Bad. And, you know, the story that Vince Gilligan told was the story of Walter White, a chemistry teacher who became the biggest drug kingpin in the Southwest. And why that show was so interesting was that the science, the him having a PhD in chemistry didn't stop him. It enabled him to to do it. And um, I think this idea that, oh, if you go to college, you get this degree. Oh, you're a better person or whatever. No, no, no. All the dictators have had PhDs in world history. And they've all been very, very, very highly educated people, people at the top education, Whatnot doesn't protect you from, and science certainly, above all, doesn't doesn't protect you from developing in a wrong way, as a child or as an adult. And so we need to view science that way. You know, science doesn't have some kind of flavor, moral, cultural flavor of its own. It's 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 totally amoral. So when Pfizer says we're moving at the speed of science, or we're doing this, or when Fauci says you're criticizing me, you're criticizing science. With this kind of moral high tone, it it really just doesn't it, it doesn't make any sense because um, with, science is a utilitarian tool. It's not a um, certainly doesn't make anybody better. I'm not aware that doctors are above reproach on their tax returns. I'm not I'm not aware that the IRS looks at somebody that works at NIH and says, "Well, we don't need to audit them. They they work at NIH. Why are we auditing their taxes? I mean, they're a scientist. I'm I'm not aware that the IRS thinks this and they you know they they don't because nobody with common sense uh, thinks that so um, kids kids need to know morals don't don't come automatically they don't come from science they don't come from mainstream culture i think you need to you need to find them on their own and you need to delve into religion and mystery and the primitive things in order to develop fully as a human being. I don't think being what today's considered mainstream is going to give you any kind of good moral developments going to if anything just give you kind of platitudes and a kind of veneer of um, being upstanding and that's uh, that's a lot of people that that work for the state today.
0: Dr. Cook, I know your time is limited. I think we should do a second one maybe talking about morality psychedelics i I have a lot of questions about spiritualism and what you see sometimes in psychedelic trips and i would like your opinion on that so if you're open to them we should do a second or uh, another recording in the future
1: i would love it let's do a a focused talk on uh, people who go into psychedelics um, as agnostics and they come out convinced that they talk to their ancestors (laughs) We see that. I see that at my clinic all the time. And um, it's, it's fascinating.
0: Great. Well, Dr. Cook, I really appreciate your
1: time and um, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Appreciate it. I had a fun time. Thanks, Rob.